But read with me in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. At midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So with this parable, you know, it's really helpful is when Jesus um, tells us how to interpret it. And if, we, if you look carefully, there's a little Bible study tip. When you're reading a, any part of Scripture, but certainly a parable, look at who he's speaking to. So if you do this, you go all the way back to chapter 24, verse 3, and you realize that the disciples met him where they're on Mount, the Mount of Olives, and they say, tell us what it's going to be like when you come back. Tell us what it'll be like when you return, the second coming. And Jesus then goes on a diatribe of 94 verses without anyone else speaking. 94 verses of stories, and you can even put it up on the screen, this next slide of all the different, um, what it looks like. See, there's, that's what he says. One question, and they get all of this response about what the second coming will be like. And then there's something else interesting. So we know right away that he's talking about the second coming, the future. But then he even says it in the parable itself. Have you noticed he doesn't, all the other times, even I think when Pastor Paul spoke about one of them, it says, or he's going to, um, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like, present tense. Here he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So again, he's pointing us into the future. There's something coming down the road. And then the very last verse we read tells us even more clearly when he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So in other words, this is what he's saying. The end is going to come. The bill will come after the meal at some point. So be ready for it. So what we're seeing in this parable is advice, not advice, that sounds too soft, commands, warnings even about what we should look like, what our lives should be like in the in-between, between the betrothal and the wedding, what do we do with our time? How are we to be ready for when he shows up? And we do this, I think we see it's a warning, surely, but it's also an incredible encouragement in here. And I know we sometimes get more focused on the negative part than we do on the positive. So we're going to try to balance that if we can. So we're going to see the parable tells us what, what we're expected to do, why we don't do it, and then how we can do it, okay? So what we're expected to do, why we don't do it, and how we can. So what are we expected to do? So the imagery in this parable is pretty clear. The groom is Jesus. The bridesmaids are the church. And sometimes people will ask, well, why is it the, bridegroom, the bridesmaids um, and not the bride? Or isn't the church the bride, singular? Well, yes, but for the purpose of this illustration, it would be weird to say we have one bride and half of her went and half of her didn't. So I think Jesus is intentionally saying, well, let's now refer to the church as the bridesmaids. They're invited to the wedding. And the clear problem is he's going to come back and there'll be no warning and he'll be delayed. Isn't that interesting that he mentions he was delayed? He's going to be delayed. So how is it that we endure 
through this delay because we know many fall away because it's difficult to endure for a long period of time. And the answer, well, not the answer, so if that's the case, what are we called to do? Well, these women in this parable are, are judged based on how they shine. Your job as a church, at least according to the parable, at least very simply put, is you are to welcome the bridegroom when he comes by shining. That's how it's represented here. And the difference between the two is oil. One has oil, one doesn't. So what we need to figure out is, what is the oil? What is that? Is it good works? Is it prayer? Is it defending the faith? What is it? And if we do that, I think we're going to see that what the oil is, what we're lacking in one group of people, and what we have in the other is faith. And let me justify that because it doesn't say it directly. And to understand it, let's go all the way through Revelation chapter 19, when it's the depiction of the second coming. And here's what it says, in chapter, starting verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and, and like the sound of many, mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So in Revelation, it's saying the bride, the bridesmaids, us, the church, when he comes, the ones who are accepted into the feast are the ones who have made themselves ready. And then they're clothed, but they're clothed by righteous deeds. Good works is what it looks like. So it seems to me, on the, on the face, I, I've had people say, well, then that means you're admitted to the wedding feast based on your good works, not a based, on, on based on grace. Isn't that what it says? Well, no. And this is why it says it. Let's use the example maybe of, um, like, why do they do it? Why do the bridesmaids get ready? Think about your wedding if you're married. If you're not, I don't know, think about movies or something. Um, think about the bride. Why does the bride spend all... I'm gonna, I may show I'm not a bride here. Why does the bride take all morning... Is it only a morning? I don't know. To get her hair done and the makeup and to get put into a dress that may be too tight for her. Like there's... Why is it all these preparations, right? And all the preparations happen because of two things. Faith and love. The first one is faith. She knows the wedding's going to happen. The building's been paid for. The groom is technically going to show up, right? Everything is done. It's going to happen. And so her getting all dressed up and getting ready isn't to earn the wedding. It's because she believes the wedding is going to happen. And the wedding was committed to before she looked all beautiful and pretty that day, right? So the works can't be to earn salvation. And aside from that, you know why else she does it? Not just because she knows the wedding will come, because she really wants the groom to be pleased. Doesn't, don't you want... I mean, the men do the same thing, but we just doesn't take as long to get ready. I'm sorry. Not because we're any better looking, I assure you. Um, but you get ready, and the reason you adorn yourself in this way is because you want to present yourself to your spouse perfect, or as close to it as you can get. And that is because there's love that drives it. It's not works righteousness. If it was, Christ would say, get yourself dolled up and then I'll see if I'm going to betroth you. But that's not the order it comes in. 
And so, these faithful women, these faithful bridesmaids that are being described here, the missing ingredient, the oil that they have is faith. They trust that he's coming back. And because they trust he's coming back, they act accordingly throughout their lives. And so, when he shows up and they're admitted in, it's not that one moment, because all that one moment they respond, but because they have spent their lives, or at least as long as they've known him, preparing for that moment. And so it's a life of faith. And so let me end that first one there. So the first thing is this. What are we expected to do? We are expected to have faith that Christ is coming back and then to prepare accordingly. That's the first thing. That's what the wise people do. Now, if that's the case, why don't we do it? Now we have to look at the foolish, foolish bridesmaids here. So they are expected to shine, but they don't. And what they are lacking is oil. Faith is at least my assumption here. So think about how similar they looked right up until that moment. Right up until the groom comes and they ask to be admitted, they would have looked exactly like the wise ones. Sorry. They would have looked the same, right? Same invitation, same clothing, same group of friends. They, both had, they all had lights or lamps. They all answer the call when, when it goes out to wake up and meet the groom. So everything looks the same. The difference is that much like 2 Peter says in chapter 3, verses 3 to 9, Peter says, in, as Christ delays, the longer he delays, the more scoffers are going to arise because it's very difficult to endure. And he expects it to happen. And these women show that their life of faithfulness, a life of a lack of faithfulness is what is being condemned at the end, not this one moment. It's not like Christ is saying he's being a stickler. Like here, at the, at, the, at the last moment, you're just forgetful. You know, you're, at this moment, you're acting foolish, so I'm going to cut you out. No. The reason they get cut out is because they're fools. And I'll explain why that wording is so strong, isn't it? It's intentional. It's not a one moment. Their life has shown this. Let me give you an example from um, uh, a movie you've all seen. I don't know if you've read the book. I don't know if this part's in the book, but it's in Pinocchio, Carlo Collodi. Um, Italian writer wrote this book called Pinocchio, which everybody's at least seen the Disney movie, I'm sure. And in part of it, Pinocchio goes on, uh, I don't know, his, uh, his rumspringa, I guess. He goes off and does his rebellion, right? He goes off and spends time um, uh, smoking and missing school, all these things. And at one point, he wakes up and he finds he's been turned into a donkey. And in the book, he starts flailing about he's not sure what he's doing so he goes to a friend of his and it's not Jiminy Cricket in the book it's a dormouse he goes to this mouse and says um, what's wrong with me and the dormouse says to him well it looks like <laughs> it's, it's, the wording is kind of funny he says you've got donkey fever that's what you got you got donkey fever and um, his response is this to Pinocchio my dear boy answered the dormouse to cheer him up a bit why worry now what is done cannot be undone you know Fate has decreed that all lazy boys who come to hate books and schools and teachers and spend all their days with toys and games must sooner or later turn into donkeys. And then, in a fascinating twist, Pinocchio then says, well, you know, it's not my fault. It's my friend's fault. And his friend's name is Lampwick. Trimming the Lampwick is interesting. So it's his fault. And the Dormouse then comes back and says this, and why did you follow the advice of that false friend? Why? Because, my dear little Dormouse, I am a heedless marionette, heedless and heartless. Oh, if I had only had a bit of heart, I should never have abandoned that good fairy who loved me so well and who has been so kind to me. Notice something. 
he becomes what he is. That it's not a moment. He didn't act for a moment in, like the donkey. And it wasn't even just his actions. Something interesting that Collodi puts in the book that is, that is not biblical, but it's biblical. It, it carries on a biblical principle. He says that all lazy boys who come to hate books will eventually become a donkey. Come to hate. He doesn't say those who cut school once in a while, those who just neglect it a little bit. What he is saying is, you're a donkey because you hate education. You hate being disciplined. That's what makes you a donkey. Not the fact that you occasionally don't, you, you jump out. And with these women, it's the same issue. They're being excluded not because it's a moment of foolishness, but because the, the, the sum of their life shows that their lamp is empty. And they, in not honoring God, show that they actually hate him. They don't want him. And that's, it sounds like a harsh line, but it's very simple. If you, don't, if, you, if, you, if you hate something, you treat it by neglecting it, right? That's how you treat things you don't. You know, a husband can say as much as he wants, I love my wife. If you neglect your wife, you don't love her. You may like the fact that she's home for you, there's a security, there makes you feel good about yourself, but you don't love her. Not if you treat her like that. There's a, there's a defect in love at that point. And here we're seeing the very same thing. Now, notice then, they say, they, they're under the impression, and this is what makes them fools. See, the biblical understanding of fool, all through the Old Testament, people are called fools. And people, you know, we, we shudder to use that language today. But that's, I think, and we don't want to go out calling people fools. And some people will say, well, Jesus did. Yeah, you're not Jesus. So just be clear about that. Jesus may call something out, and you have the right to call things out, but not the same way. Remember, you are fallible. So let's be clear about that. But, we, but the Bible's clear. Some people are fools, and it's nothing about IQ. What it is is this. Every bit of your IQ, every bit of your being is meant to guide you to seek God in greater measure. And it is a fool who uses any part of their life to do anything but that. If you waste your life looking for anything but Christ as the source, then you're an idiot. That's what the Bible says. And that's harsh, but that's, what, that's why it uses this language so strongly throughout Scripture. And that may sound difficult. You'll say, well, I have a great IQ. I've accomplished much. And Christ would say, I don't know you. So what's it good for? What's it good for all your intelligence if you don't seek God? You know, it's kind of common sense. If you see a great painting at a, at a, at a museum, you usually will say, who painted it? Right? You never stop at the surface of the thing. You always want to delve deeper to know who did it. And then you want to know about the artist. What made them see it the world that way? Where did they get this talent? You want to hear their story. You read their biography. Only the fool stops at the surface and doesn't go deeper. And then they turn and they show up to Christ. They show up to the groom with lamps that are empty. And because the lamps fooled you and I, because many of us, listen, we're not going to take the 50-50 split real. I'm not going to say this half's in, this half's out, or vice versa. That's not the, that's not the point here. The point is to say, Many people are walking around with empty lamps. I don't know who they are. I really don't. Because as you see, the difference between the fraud and the, and the authentic are so near that I, I, don't, I lack the discernment sometimes to see it. All of us do. And yet some people think, because I fooled them, I can come with an empty lamp and Christ will be fooled. There's no wedding crashers in heaven. There's none. You can't fool him. So the next thing they do is they turn and say, well, let me borrow some of your oil. And the wise women here are not being selfish. 
The reason they say no is because Jesus is making a theological point. You cannot borrow faith. Faith is not something you can hand off. I can't have faith for you. You can't have faith for me. My children cannot have faith. I can't have faith for them. At some point, God's going to hold them accountable to make decisions. And they are expected to account. And the point here is the women are saying, but I need it. I, I, I want it. And you see, what are they doing? When you say, give me oil, I need to get into the wedding, you're showing something very clear. All you care about is getting into the wedding. You don't care about God. You never cared enough to spend the time getting ready. Think about, um, think about firemen. You know, firemen spend their lives, and they sleep sometimes. I knew fire, I know many firemen. And they'll sleep sometimes, right? During some shifts, they're long, and they can be slower, and they'll sleep. But have you noticed that in this parable, although it says they got drowsy and fell asleep, the wise fell asleep too. Sleeping isn't condemned. The issue isn't falling asleep. Think about the firemen. The issue with the sleep all you want, firemen, but when that alarm goes, I hope you've done the preparation before you fell asleep so that when it sounds, you are ready at a moment's notice to get into service, right? So the key is not falling asleep. It's are you prepared? And these women show a lack of faith, and half of the church or some of the church do this, by saying, I actually don't believe he's ever going to show up. I'm not going to bother preparing. What's the point? And you can say what we want. We can say as we want. But when we don't prepare for what Christ is saying is a certainty, you're showing that you actually don't believe him. So it is a faith issue at root. So the warning for us, of course, is does our profession match our actions? This is the James and Paul, right? Works without faith is dead. Faith without works is dead. They they're both are expected. And we think sometimes we want to fall, we fall off the horse on one side or the other. Some of you would, uh, and all of us, we all have one side we favor. Some of us are more works-oriented, right? And you, all, you probably mumble under your breath, how come nobody else is volunteering? Um, and then you're on the other side who say, I don't need to volunteer. If only they knew their works wouldn't save them. You know, we're both. We fall on both sides. And Christ is saying, it's a very tricky balance. But the wise people balance it. They find a way. Now, if that's the case, how can we possibly do it? How do we endure in this delay? How do we keep the momentum? Because it's very hard, isn't it? It's hard at the best of times. And I was just talking with, with someone about, I know we think we have it hard here in Canada sometimes because we have governments that we think are secular and not Christian, and certainly that's true. And we worry about masks and the rights of the church. Boy, the church is suffering far more elsewhere. That doesn't mean you're not struggling. It doesn't mean it's not something happening. I understand that. But this, have you, you know what's happening around the world? The church is struggling. I was just telling a story about being in Russia. And when they're in Russia, and there's this um, group of people who were uh, various pastors and evangelists, and they were, all they needed from the West were copies of the Bible and resources in, in Russian. And we asked them, um, so if you go to jail, uh, when I was with a ministry before, and the group asked, so what, you know, the Putin was putting people in jail for their faith at the time. He said, what if you go to jail? And this little woman who was probably this tall, you know, like, looks like a weakling by all outward appearances, says, well, then I, instead of preaching to free people, I preach to prisoners. Big deal. And it's like, and then that makes me feel very small <laughs> and realize, oh. And yet here we are. How do we endure? Because it's still hard. We didn't choose to be born in Canada. This is what we, God put us. But how do we endure this race he's put us into? And I think the answer comes in the very imagery of a wedding. 
Christ is continually referring to himself as a bridegroom and the church is his bride and the end is a big celebration and a wedding supper and the wedding dinner and feast of the lamb. And I think, let's think about what actual Hebrew weddings looked like at the time. Generally, what would happen was this. The husband would, and the families would arrange a wedding. The man would then, once it's arranged, it's betrothal. This is Joseph to Mary. It's a done deal. Once we're betrothed, we're married. It's as good as done, but we're not finished. With, in between the betrothal and the wedding, the man goes away. And his job is to then go to wherever he's going to set up a home for his new family. And he creates a place. He literally makes a place for his new family. It could be at his, in, his parents' house. It could be a new place, whatever it is. He goes away. And then on the night that is appointed for the wedding, he and his entourage of buddies come marching down the road singing songs. I don't know. I don't know what it would look like. I know what it would look like now. There'd be a lot of selfies and vodka. But in those days, I don't know. But it would be this entourage of loud clamoring. He would come with his friends. And they would show up at the bride's house. And then they would be married. And then they would go off back to the parent, his parents' house or his place for this grand feast and then life together. So, we just read that part in Revelation 19. And you see the imagery, this idea that Christ has come. He's betrothed himself to us on the cross. He has then gone away and he's preparing a place. But one day he's going to come back with all this shouts and this, this entourage. I don't, we read Reve, we're going to do Revelation next year as a church. And you're going to see, uh, he comes with this big group and this loud clamor, and he marries them and takes them, and there's a feast. Now, with that in mind, understand that when Christ betrothed himself to us, this is, I think, how we can endure. When he betrothed themselves to you, what was the dowry you gave him? What was the dowry? Sin and death. That's what you gave him. Jesus, all I can give you is what I have, and what I have is a death sentence. It's like marrying somebody who you know is buried neck deep in debt. Would you do it? You probably did by accident. You didn't even know it. <laughs> Maybe you didn't know it. But anyway, but you see, this is, Jesus comes and he betrothes us when we had nothing. In fact, less than nothing. It was going to cost him to marry us. And yet he still chooses to come. This is Cinderella on steroids. It's far greater that he would come. He gains nothing out of this. And we have to remember that. Christ can gain nothing but the pure joy of loving you from it. Because what could you possibly give somebody who has everything? Nothing. So he comes and he does that. And this joy, the fact that he has done that is what we do. That's why we come and we then start adorning ourselves like a bride. And we do it with good works. Yes, we lay down our lust, our greed, our power. And we start serving the hungry, the downtrodden. We start preaching the gospel. We start doing all these things not to earn salvation, but to adorn ourselves. Not because we're getting any more, but we want to please him. When he comes, he want, we want him to see a radiant bride. In fact, as a pastor, I am charged, according to the New Testament and the epistles, as someone whose my job is to present you all as radiant before Christ. It's a huge burden, but that's awesome. That's what we're called to do. And if you ever, I mean, Christians, this is what you and I have to accept. If you're a skeptic listening, consider this your invitation. Because I am an invited guest, I can invite you. Come to the wedding. Now, it's not... See, sometimes we get so focused on not being the foolish brides that we fail to rejoice like the wise ones. The church can get pretty sour, eh? There's a lot of negative people in the church. And they get so worried about avoiding being foolish that they forget to rejoice. And there's this wonderful quote from a guy... If you ever read anything by a guy named Robert, K, uh, Robert Ferrer Capon, um, 
wonderful theology, but he's always this close to being a heretic because he uses such beautiful language, and it's like you're always worried reading him. You're thinking, is he going to go the wrong way? But he turns out to be quite solid. And this is what he says about this. I love it. He says, when all is said and done, we need to take a deep breath and let it out with a laugh because what we are watching for is a party, and that party is not just down the street making up its mind when to come to us. It's already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam, pu- steam pipes and laughing its way up our cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its fina- finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It is all part of the divine lark of grace. God is not our mother-in-law coming to see whether her, her wedding present china has been chipped. He's a funny old uncle with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other. We do indeed need to watch for him but only because it would be such a pity to miss all the fun. Now, I'm not saying go away and think Jesus is an uncle with a salami. Uh, It's not what we're saying. But you see what he's getting at. We so often worry about not being foolish that we forget this is pretty awesome. There's this party coming. And when you know it's coming and you believe it's coming, you can delay now. You can delay joy and gratification to an extent. In fact, it's not even really delaying it because you have it anyway. Even amidst delaying it, you find you're still joyful. And the world says, I've had people say to me who've been divorced, and they're very sour on marriage. And they say very negative things like, how are you going to feel when your wife leaves you? How are you going to feel, Carl? Um, You know, those types of cynical types. Don't like the marriage. And my answer is always the same. First, the world is sinful. If it happens, what have I done wrong? I've loved my wife. I've been faithful to her. I've done exactly what Christ has asked. I won't regret a minute of faithfulness. Not one. I can be joyful at all times, even if it's difficult, because there's a great party coming, and it's for us, and we didn't earn it. And with that in mind, let's live in joy and anticipation of this wedding, because Christ married you when you had nothing, and he's coming back to claim you, because he's already paid the price. It's like putting something on layaway, but paying it in full. If it sits there in the locker for years, you know he's going to come pick it up, because he's paid for it. He's paid for you. He's coming. Let's endure. Let's pray.